Today we're going to read the final portion of Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 that we typically call the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at this for the last three weeks or four weeks and haven't got to see it all, which is a shame, which we'll talk a little bit about. But uh, what a refreshing time it's been for me to go back through this wonderful sermon. I hope it has been for you as well. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God, the very words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Now, God bless the reading of his word. And a special thank you to Scott for jumping in here at the last moment when Brian got up without much of a voice this morning. So appreciate having Scott being willing to do that. You know, you can meet someone who's kind of brand new to you and suddenly find out because you have some shared experiences that you develop a bond very quickly. Uh, One of the, I don't know whether to say perks of my work or one of the realities of being a minister is you get to know the funeral directors of a town pretty well. And there's a young man that's just come here recently and working for one of our funeral homes. And I I worked with him for the first time the other day, and we were kind of trying to break the ice and get to know each other. Come to find out that he grew up in the same little town that I grew up in. So immediately, we felt this bond of kinship. And even though we're a generation, two generations apart, uh, we knew some of the same folks and, and knew some of the same places and sort of had fun comparing how things are now as to how they were way back in the old days. So kind of fun. Well, today I want to play that game with you. I want to see if there's some of you that we can immediately have this bond of kinship because we have some shared experiences. How many of you have ever been wakened in the night by the roar of a storm, by the rolling thunder, by the flash of the lightning, or maybe even wakened by the scream of the siren announcing that a tornado is approaching? Now, there's quite a few of you in here. Surely, if you live in West Texas very long, you've had that experience. However, Have you ever stumbled out of bed in the middle of the night, frantically put your clothes on, and run out the back door with the rain just soaking you, the wind blowing on you, the hail beginning to pelt on top of your head, and you run for the 
cellar. That's right. And you go down in the cellar, and they shut the door, and you've got either your coal oil lamp or some kind of a flashlight or a candle, and you can smell the musty smell of the storm cellar. You look around on the shelves lining the cellar. What's there? Canned goods, that's right. Home canned beans and fruit and all those things. And, and you stay in there, and then you ride out the storm. And all the time, I can remember as a young child going through this at my grandparents' house. I don't know why they always saved the tornado until I went and spent a week with my grandparents. But it seemed like every year we had at least one mad dash to the cellar. And I can remember as a young child being in there, hearing the storm, and and sometimes even the cellar door would start sort of bouncing up and down, and my grandfather would have to hold it closed. And you were just wondering, what's going on out there? Is this really the big one? Is the tornado coming right over us? And then as things began to get quiet, and you open the door, I can remember you walk up those steps, and you peek out, and you look, And your question is, is the house still there? Anyone share those experiences? Yeah, okay, it's a few. We sort of cut it down, didn't we? We don't build cellars much anymore. But you know what? The houses back then, the house that my grandparents lived in, was not built to withstand a tornado. That's why we ran for the cellar. However, most of our houses are not built to withstand a tornado either. It's not that we don't know how to do that. We can build a house that can withstand most tornadoes. Why don't we do it? Well, it costs too much money, doesn't it? To build a house like that would be a big investment, so we tend not to build those houses. And also, if you've ever seen a structure that's built to withstand tornadoes, they're not really aesthetically that pleasing to us, you know. They look sort of like bunkers, you know. And, and you don't want to live in one of those. Or part of it maybe is underground. And we say, oh, I don't want to live you know, underground. And there's one of those in my neighborhood in Santa Rita. Someone built one years ago that's mostly underground. And you look at it and you think, well, that's real neat, but I don't want to live there. So you go ahead and you build your regular house, knowing that there there is a chance, living in West Texas, that a tornado might come through, but you sort of weigh the cost and the odds and agree to live in your normal-looking house and cross your fingers and hope that that storm never comes. It's interesting that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus chose to finish his sermon with an illustration about storms and houses. And I think he chose to do this because he knew that this was something that was familiar to his audience. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that Israel climate is a lot like West Texas. They're very similar. Now that, that's just another reason why we ought to live out here. It's a Jesus thing to do, right? You know, we can identify with Jesus because the weather is a lot like what he grew up in. So he knew that if he talked about storms, 
and the possibility of storms blowing down houses, that the people he had been preaching to would relate to that. Jesus, in particular, could really relate to it because Jesus built houses. He was a carpenter. And by this time that he was preaching this sermon, he was in his early 30s at least. How many houses had he built? We don't know. We sort of imagine him starting pretty early with his father Joseph, don't we? Working along beside him. So you can imagine, as he was a young teenager, all the way through his 20s, after his father evidently had passed away, he probably kept on building houses. If you were to ask him, how many houses have you built, Jesus? I, I think he would have had to stop and think, let me see. Okay, one, two. Yeah. I don't know if he could even remember. Well, he was Jesus. He probably could remember all of the houses that he had built. I wonder if he hadn't even done some repair work on houses that had been damaged by storms. It was interesting to me to think that as he gave this illustration of storms and houses, that he might not have been thinking about a specific house that he had once worked on, that he had gone to and it had been flattened by a storm. Maybe the people inside hurt, maybe even killed. And he was there to rebuild that house and to rebuild their lives. So he gives this illustration about building a house that's strong enough to withstand the storms. And yet we know he's really not talking about houses, is he? No. What he's more concerned about is are we building lives that can withstand the storms of life? Because you know you might get away with building a house that won't stand up to a tornado. Because you might win in the odds game, because the odds are your house is not going to get hit by a tornado. But you know what the odds are of making it through life without any storms? Zero. If you look ahead to the forecast of your life, there is a hundred percent chance of storms. It's a guarantee. That's why Jesus was so interested in his followers building their lives so that when the storms hit, not if the storms hit, But when the storms hit, that their lives could survive. That they would not be knocked over. Their lives would not totally collapse. And as he reached the end of his sermon here, it's almost like he's giving us a test to see if we've been listening. Because what he's saying is, this is so important that you learn how to build your life so that it can withstand the coming storms. And at the end, it's almost like he says, okay, take out a piece of paper, and we're going to have a test. Remember when you used to walk in the classroom and do that? Some of you are teachers. You probably still do that to your kids. Meanies. Oh, how do you do? You know, you walk in, they're all happy, and you say, okay, everybody take out a piece of paper. Oh, no, here it comes. 
Right. Put your name at the top. And I have been telling you, Jesus says, what a life that can withstand the storms of life looks like. You tell me now what you've heard. How much of his teaching about building stormproof lives do we know? Wow. How much of what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount has stuck? When he tells us you got to know these things, you got to know these things in order to survive, do we take him that seriously? Seriously enough to even know what he said. If I do nothing else today in this time that's allotted, I hope that I plant the idea in your mind that you've got to go back and read this thing at least one more time. That because in Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the very words of Jesus, his teachings, that can tell you how to build a life that'll last, that can stand up when the storms hit. Now, I don't know how long it took Jesus to preach that sermon, because I don't know if we've got the whole sermon there or just maybe the highlights of the sermon. I don't know if Jesus, you know, had to chase some rabbits like some preachers I know do, you know, and maybe stretch things out longer than they had to be. I don't know. Maybe he talked really fast or maybe he talked very slow. I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take you to read back over the Sermon on the Mount, but I've got about nine minutes here that I can use to go back and hit the high points one more time. Some of which we've already done over the past few weeks. But I want to do that as much for my own benefit because when I hear myself saying these things, it kind of brings them back into my own thinking. But I hope that it's helpful to you too because these are the building blocks of a life that can withstand the storms of life. Do you remember what we talked about three or four weeks ago? How that when you are a kingdom person, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you make a commitment to relationship. And we've been over this. This is probably the third time we've mentioned it, I think. Maybe even the fourth time. But one of the first things that Jesus talked about after he gave his introductory beatitudes that we uh, looked at as well, is that how to be one of his disciples, you commit yourself to having relationships with people. You're not a loner in this life. And you're not someone that just turns away from the commitments to relationship that you have made. When something goes wrong between you and someone else, you care. And you go and address that problem. If anger is involved, if someone is angry with you or you are angry with someone else, you care enough to deal with it. Not to just sweep it aside, not to just let that relationship fall apart and say, oh well, who cares, I can make new friends. Or that person isn't meaningful or significant in my life anyway, just to let it go. No, Jesus says if you're building a storm-proof life, if you're building a life that, that is a kingdom life, one of the key cornerstones is that you are a person that values relationships. Now, why is that? Well, because God is a God who values relationships. And when you became his enemy 
and you created anger between the two of you, he didn't just say, well, forget them. No, he paid the price. He gave his son to die for us so that he could come back and reconcile himself and reconcile us to him. And as we went ahead and looked, as Paul interpreted all this, as saying, you know, that, that God came and reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. Therefore, he has called us to be ministers of reconciliation. That's what we're about. We're about repairing relationships, nurturing relationships, forming relationships. And he goes on then and talks about the most intimate of all relationships, that of marriage. And, and what I read in that is this, and as well as other scriptures as well. If you want to be a person who can have a strong relationship with God, you know where you practice on that? On your spouse. That's where you learn to what it's like to have an intimate relationship. And you, you, you practice on being a self-giving and a, and a repairing and a reconciling person with that most intimate of relationships, your spouse. That's why divorce is such a, a, a terrible thing, as Jesus talks about, and, and how destructive that is. Because you haven't learned the lesson. At least one of the two hasn't learned a lesson. And so if you want to build a stormproof life, you learn to value relationships, repair relationships, find depth in relationships, because that's where you begin to make your connections to God. Second thing that we talked about was that you live a life, a kingdom life, means that you fight evil tooth and nail, but you fight evil with good. You fight hate with love. Okay? We'll give a chance for the phone to stop. <laughs> Catchy tune. Maybe it's not going to. All right. Sorry, I don't usually get distracted, but that one caught me. When you build a kingdom life, it's not that you become a patsy and just roll over, but rather you hate evil so much that you want to stop it, but you stop it with good. And you've got to be someone who works at that enough that you even imitate the creativity of God himself. Because it's not always easy to think, how do I respond lovingly to hate? How do I respond with good to evil? How do I do that? How do I not let my sinful nature take over and respond to a slap with a slap? Respond to anger with anger? Respond... To, to hate with hate. That's what I want to do. But if I'm doing that, I'm not building the kind of life that's going to last. The third thing we talked about was living a fearless life. Remember that? I think that was just last week. That we don't live a life that's consumed with worry and with doubt and with fear. That we trust in God. We trust in God enough that He's going to take care of us. That He will keep His word. And we seek first his kingdom and the righteousness that is found within his kingdom. We set that as our priority and we trust him then to take care of the rest. Well, those are the three things that we've talked about, but there's so much more there. For example, 
If we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we're supposed to live our lives as being generous lives, that we give for the sake of giving to those who are in need, not because we have to give, not because we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, not because we are trying to please ourselves. And in fact, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you find out there's a lot in worship about, a lot about worship in that sermon. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us in his sermon is that building a kingdom life, building a life that can withstand the storms, is a lot about learning how to worship God. And worshiping God is nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with what we want, what we like. It's nothing to do with with impressing other people. It's all about God. It's all about giving Him glory, giving Him praise, and doing the things that he has called upon us to do that will benefit others. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find things about fasting. You're going to find things about giving your alms. And you're going to find things about praying. Because another one of the key components of building a life that will last is a life of prayer. Jesus' people are praying people. Where do we learn about the Lord's Prayer? The Sermon on the Mount. Here in the middle of the sermon, Jesus says, here's a model prayer that you need to learn how to pray. Memorize it. Yeah, pray it. How long has it been since you prayed the Lord's Prayer? He told you to pray it, but use it for a model as well to build your own prayer life and to see what it is that that, that we're supposed to pray for and how we're supposed to pray to God. But most of all, we are to pray to God. That, that if we're not praying people, we're not building lives that'll stand. We're not building on the foundation. We're to pray with the faith that if we ask, he will give us what we need. Hey, where do we find this passage? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock in the door. The Sermon on the Mount. That we have full confidence that when we ask God, he will give us. And he goes on to say that. He says, if you ask God, he's like a father. Which of your children, if, he comes up, if your child comes up to you and says, I need some bread, you're not going to give that, person, that child a rock. You know, and he makes the point that you know how to be good parents. You know how to give your, your children what they need. Trust that God will do the same for you. I think the opposite is implied there as well because I tend to ask my father in heaven for a lot of rocks. I think that's what I need, and I ask him, and he goes, no, 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 that's a rock. I'm going to give you bread instead. But we're praying in faith, and we're living in faith, and we're trusting that God will answer those prayers and will give us exactly what we need. We learn in the Sermon on the Mount that we're not to be judgmental people. We're once again to push back that sinful nature that we have of focusing on what's wrong with everyone else. Maybe I'm the only one that has that problem. Do you ever fight that thing of of picking out the faults of other people? And Jesus says, if you build your life on stuff like that, it's going to collapse when the hard times come. What you need to be worried about is finding the things that you can work on in yourself. The idea of the moat and the beam and the eye, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. That we're to be people who, who are more concerned about getting our own lives right and being gracious and forgiving toward others. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, one more time, he says, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, if you carry grudges, if you stay angry with everyone, guess what? God will not forgive you either. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we are to think about 
what we want other people to do for us. Let me say that again. <laughs> it's, it's there. It really is. He gives you permission to sit around and think, what do I want to have everybody else do for me? Now, that, that fits right into my nature. I like that. I can name a lot of things that I think you guys ought to be doing for me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you want to build a good life that will last in the storms of life, sit around and think about what you would like other people to do for you. (laughs) You already know what's coming, don't you? And you turn right around and do that for them. That's how you set your agenda. That's how you decide you're going to treat people. You're going to treat them the way you want other people to treat you. You're going to do for them the very things you want other people to do for you. It's just a restatement of the Old Testament principle, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. And you just simply stop and think, what is it I wish were going on around me? How do I wish other people were toward me? And you turn out and you go out and you do it. Hmm. There's much more, but my nine minutes is up. You know, there's people in this room right now who are living lives where the sun is shining. Isn't it great? Isn't it great to go through those times in life where everything is just wonderful? And some of you right now are there. Enjoy. Appreciate it. That there's no storm clouds really on the horizon. Everything looks good. But do remember that the storms will come. And during this time when things are so good, heed the words of Jesus when he says, Know my words, do my words, and therefore build a house that will last when the storms get here. For some in this room, you can hear the thunder. You hear the rain on the windows, you hear the hail hitting the roof right now. And as the wind begins to blow, you're already wondering, can I make it through this? Well, it's not too late to begin living a life that can, and particularly in trusting the one who will make it happen. And unfortunately, I know with this many people sitting in this room, that there's some of you that right now are just walking through the ruins of a life. Because the storm has come, and it all collapsed. And you're wondering, can it be built again? And the answer that Jesus gives us is yes. But this time, let's build a life that can withstand the storms. A life that will endure for as long as you live And then forever. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And as we do so, we've got some of our leaders, our staff, our elders who will be at the front, on the sides, at the back. I don't know where you are right now, but if you're hearing the wind and the rain and the hail and you need some help, that's why we're here. Let's stand and sing.